0: This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to atomicbooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. Uh,
1: there's there's a, the, the odd moment in the record where it kind of goes slightly askew, if that's the word, which makes me love it all the more. Uh, it grooves uh, sonically. It's delicious. Uh, I love it. It just, you know, brings together so much for me. And I think it does, it still has, you know, even if you think the, the performance is less wistful than, um, if that's the word, than McCartney's, the melody... You know, still speaks volumes about uh, a kind of loss and uh, longing.
0: This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Pretty Politti, formed in Leeds, England in 1977, was of its time from the onset, and has continued to be throughout their 45 plus year career. After the off-kilter punk of their self released debut single, Skank Block Bologna, the band evolved over a short amount of time past the limitations of that movement to slickly produced radio pop, but of the extremely well-crafted variety. Although Gartside and the band's most recent work came out in 2006, the depth of their catalog ensures their relevance to the current day. The first song Gartside chose as being formative for him was Blackbird by Rosalind Sweet and the Paragons.
1: It's a Beatles tune. It's the Beatles that's important. I mean, it's, it's a cover version of, the, of, of uh, Paul McCartney's Blackbird, which was on the Beatles' White Double Album. And uh, I really, you know, should begin with a, a quote that I always find useful. This is a quote from Timothy Leary, uh, writing in the mid-60s, I think, about the Beatles. And he said, um, I declare that the Beatles are mutants. Prototypes of evolutionary agents sent by God with a mysterious power to create a new species, a young race of laughing free men. They are the wisest, holiest, most effective avatars the human race has ever produced. So and for me, Timothy Leary was right. I mean, that's true for me. Uh, The Beatles were everything to me you know I bought my first Beatles single when I was eight years old I started reading the New Musical Express when I was eight Uh, you know and leaving aside the question of how pop music is powerful whatever that power is is it was unleashed for me by the Beatles. I fell in love with them and their music, and I was led by them. I was taught by them. I was, you know, shown things by them. Like, you know, what, what do these lyrics mean? Why are these guys dressed like that? Why doesn't this record sound like the last Beatles records? What are they doing with a Maharishi? Why is John Lennon in a bag for peace? You know, they gave me a uh, a taste for change and for challenges and for ideas. And, uh, you know, there was nowhere else other than in pop music and in the talk around pop music that I would have encountered anything that challenged... You know, the working class right wing beliefs of the little town I grew up in. You know, I didn't, there was nothing to challenge, not from my parents. There were no books in my home. We didn't talk at home. There was not from the local community, not from school, not from TV or movies. The Beatles changed everything. They challenged everything. You know, uh, what I read about them, how they lived, what I could understand about them, what I didn't understand about them, all of that, you know, was massively important to them. Yeah, pop music was never simple or trite for me. It was always a challenge and a, and a stimulus to thought. And uh yeah, I was uh, uh, wholly uh, in love with them. You know, it was like three years after Love Me Do, they, they, it was the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Maharishi. And as a young schoolboy following them, they kind of blew my mind, you know, and uh, you know, Leonard Bernstein said three bars of a day in the life still sustains me, still rejuvenates me, inflames my senses and sensibilities. And I felt that way about the Beatles and, um, I kind of still do. They, they sort of meant everything to me. They are just so responsible for the kind of man I became. And instead of playing, you know, a Beatles track you already have heard. Um, I thought some, you know, I selected something from one of the best, I was going to say best triple albums there's ever been released. Uh, in fact, it's one of the best albums ever released, I think. And thats it's an album called The Trojan Beatles Tribute. I don't know if you can still get it. Well, you'll find it, the tracks somewhere. It's a, Yeah, it's like 60 tracks of Beatles covers released on the Trojan label in Jamaica in, uh, I guess, the 60s and 70s. Yeah, it's one of the greatest albums ever released, greatest compilations. And, uh, you know, if the Beatles gave me uh, the love of music, then it was The Clash. Uh, The Clash The Sex Pistols The Damned And The Heartbreakers Came to my college When I was a student And changed my life Overnight And through The Clash I got interested in reggae Because if you were a punk You know You listened to reggae And It was uh, That such a You know Massively distinctive And powerful music Emerged from one uh, Small island Jamaica Amazed me And And yeah, it became it, it, the music I listened to, reggae in the late '70s changed everything for me. It was anti-colonial magic from outside the whole Anglo-American thing. It demanded a new way of listening and uh, it rocked me to my foundations. This record predates that by about 10 years, but but this is uh, the Paragons uh, and uh, Blackbird.
0: so it's you know covers are so interesting of course because they can you can do so much with a cover um there's so many different directions you can take things and and i i wondered if you could talk a bit about um, I mean, it sounds like you were choosing this just because it was obviously the song is important to you, but it's it's uh, ties together some of your own passions, love and history. What is your sort of interpretation or feeling about the actual cover itself? What do you think they did and why they did it? And how does it affect you?
1: Well, there there isn't uh, on that Trojan um, compilation. Uh, there's not I don't think there's one bad interpretation of Beatles songs. They're all magnificent. They all take them in different directions. uh it's it's a it's a must have and i liked the horn playing for one thing on this record is just fantastic the way that uh, it sits back on a beat. the beat the the harmonizing is brilliant the paragons were one of the first kind of scar and rock steady uh harmony groups out of jamaica uh, you know they they're like historically magnificent uh there's There's the the odd moment in the record where it kind of goes slightly askew, if that's the word, which makes me love it all the more. Uh, It grooves uh, sonically. It's delicious. Uh, I love it. It just, you know, brings together so much for me. And I think it does. It still has, you know, even if you think the the performance is less wistful than, um, if that's the word, than McCartney's, the melody you know, still speaks volumes about uh, a kind of loss and uh, longing and lack. So that remains intact for me, and I adore it.
0: Um, you, of course, mentioned that reggae and punk at that time in in, in England were went part and parcel. And obviously, your especially your early work had was so informed by um, political thinking, political discourse. W- was there something? That in it, in it beyond the music itself, that it was that uh, was of interest to you in terms of reggae, meaning were your political interests um, peaked by where reggae was coming from and the context of that?
1: I guess it, I guess that the, uh, the you know, politics was indistinguishable from the reggae of the of the 70s and 80s. I mean, there was that kind of, it began maybe with uh, the Jamaican take on rhythm and blues and then went through ska rock steady. Then you hit reggae and reggae with the with Rastafarianism and uh, roots and consciousness became a very politicized Music, the whole music scene in in in, in Jamaica, as as you'll know, it was bound up with um, politics, and it was a music of struggle, and it was a music of liberation, and uh, I was aware of that, and um, but. and that was important to me but but even at a at a, a, a straightforwardly musical level it was kind of dub reggae that i first got involved in and that's that's uh, a demolishingly powerful statement in itself the way that it rips those tracks apart there's a kind of political strength to uh, to the very act of making dub and uh so yeah it was It was, I think, all of us that listened to it, you know, when we were punks were aware of the political dimension. It was there in the lyrics, you know. There's one of my favorite bands was a a band called Culture. And their lyrics, uh, it was a bit like uh, they'd taken the Old Testament and chopped it up in the way that William Burroughs might have done and reassembled it into this... Really troubling, disturbing, struggling uh, music with these exquisite melodies and harmonies. I mean, there's nothing I'd never heard anything like
0: it, and uh, yeah, it was magic. I'm in my I'm in my early fifties, so old enough to you know be tempted to harbor nostalgia for things, um, <laughs> and uh, you know sometimes that can be a very enjoyable thing, and I I don't deny myself that. But you know, you, you listen back to music. Um, from 30 years ago or 40 years ago that was part of your experience of growing up and of course you you know as we all know you're so impressionable at a young age those first songs you hear I'm I'm wondering when you when you, if you still listen to records from this era and if you do is there a component of nostalgia and how much is a component of does, does it stay very fresh for you
1: well I don't go back and listen to the music of my youth or childhood very often um Uh, That's because, you know, I remain fascinated by what's happening today. I want to find something new every, you know, every day of my life. I go looking for new songs, new sounds. And I make, you know, I still, although I haven't released a record for a long time, I still record new music every day. And uh, there's little time really for going back occasionally I will and for the most part the the, the music that I particularly loved as a you know a, t- a child teenager young man you know I love still just uh, only rarely would I would I come across a kind of jarring thing where I wonder why the hell I ever liked it for the for the most part you know uh, yeah, the reggae I listened to then I don't know about the punk I listened to then That's I'd never go back and listen to that stuff But uh, Yeah, the reggae still sounds magnificent to me And um, You know, my other choices today Which are music from my past They're, they're still as powerful now as they ever were
0: The second piece of music Gartside chose as essential to forming his sensibilities was Muddy Mouse, which in turn leads to Muddy Mouth by Robert Wyatt.
1: Work it, up, but it gets harder every day. It's never done oh. My next choice would be a song called Muddy Mouse, in brackets C, uh, which in turn leads to Muddy Mouth, which is a song by Robert Wyatt from his album, Ruth is Stranger Than Richard, and that would have come out in, I don't know, 74, maybe, I'm guessing. It, you know, if the Beatles instilled in me that uh, predilection for, you know, g- freshly challenging music or less orthodox or more challenging pop music, then that uh, appetite, you know, was sharpened and assuaged by a a British music DJ called John Peel, who, uh, you know, in Britain we had only one national radio station when I was growing up, uh, Radio 1, that's the only one that played popular music. And he had a show, John Peel, called uh, Top Gear, When I started listening to it, he, and he introduced me to what, you know, all of what you might call countercultural music. That's where I first heard the Incredible String Band or Captain Beefheart or, I don't know, Hendrix or all of that, you know, and an innumerable number of lesser known bands. And I used to record, at that point, he had a, he had a, a show on a Saturday and I'd record it and, um by the end of the week whichever track had been the most challenging listen when I first heard it the track that you know I thought "Mm, not sure about that you know that's a bit weird or that's a bit difficult by the end of the week and it was time to record the next show that was the track I, I loved the most and one of the people whose music he championed and had a very profound effect on me was Robert Wyatt. He'd been the drummer in a band called Soft Machine and they were challenging listening. You know, they had they had jazz influences, God forbid, which was completely alien to my history. And then Robert went on to form a band called Matching Mole. Uh, I ran, at 15, I went to, to the Reading Music Festival just to see Matching Mole play. Uh, and uh, then he made two solo records, Rock Bottom and Ruth is Stranger Than Richard. And they, you know, his music is uncategorizable, if that's a word. I, you know, I, I find it exquisitely beautiful and unsettling. Uh, it was hugely powerful to me then. And that really does retain every, you know, drop of power, if power's measured in drops that, that it had then. Yeah, there And those albums, his two solo albums are amongst um, my all-time favorites. You know, he had an incredible gift for, almost for and against melody. And, and uh, you know, his voice was kind of for and against everything. And those records are incalculably important to me. When I, um, when I made one of my first singles, uh, I recorded a song called The Sweetest Girl. I'd originally written it and I didn't want to record it myself. I thought, maybe it i shouldn't sing it cuz it was too much like a pop song and up to that point post punk's gritty polity had been getting more dissonant and improvised and then i wrote this kind of pop song and i thought really it should be sung by gregory isaacs the great jamaican singer and 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 craftwork should be the the band that played it not me it sounds very weird but uh but it, but that's true, actually. And I, we did write, Jeff Travis, the head of um, Rough Trade Records, did write to both uh, Kraftwerk and Gregory Isaacs, uh, w- wondering if they'd be interested in covering this song. I've no idea how that would have even worked, or uh, I don't know if Jeff did, whether he was just indulging We, we did get a response from uh, Gregory Isaacs' management in Jamaica, which was quite positive. We didn't hear anything from Kraftwerk. Many years later, I met Ralph and Florian from Kraftwerk in New York, uh, we went to see Tito Puente together with Fred Marr from Scritti, And uh, I asked them, did they ever remember being sent, you know, a demo or whatever it was? And I think I can remember them just saying, we hate reggae. Um, but... We got him famously. Anyway, so there was no, there was no, you know, Gregory and Kraftwerk were not going to cut this record. So I recorded it myself and I asked my schoolboy, uh, you know, hero, Robert Wyatt, would he come and play on it? And uh, he came to the studio. Uh, he brought Julie Christie with him the actress which I was pretty impressed with and uh, he uh, it was you know a terrifying thrill to meet the great man and uh, he played on that song The Sweetest Girl and you know he, he turned it into something wonderful I think and that began a kind of friendship. That for a while there, I'd go and visit him at his at his home. Robert, by that time, was in a wheelchair. He'd fallen out of a a window at a party, and I can remember when John Peel broke that news to 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 fans and listeners to John Peel's radio show. He said, "You know, if anybody wants to get in touch with Robert to send him their best wishes, you know, write to me, and I'll take take the letters to him." And I wrote. I would have been about 15. I wrote to John Peel enclosing uh, a letter for Robert uh, telling him how much I loved him and uh, his drumming and everything else. And when I, one day when we were at Robert's house in Richmond or Twickenham, it was by the Thames, uh, he went off and found, actually found the letter that I'd, I'd written to him as a as a teenager, as a young teenager in a, in a kind of shoebox in the cupboard. And that was a, a pretty extraordinary moment but uh yeah robert's music uh i don't know i, I robert's definitely one of a, a couple of people that that you know stand as possible greatest greatest living englishman for me uh it would be hard to overestimate his importance to me I kind of copied the way he sang when Scritty first started because he sang in an English accent uh, which very few people did in those days he also sang wordlessly and uh, in, in a magnificent way and uh, it's funny on this, on this track this beautiful track from uh, Muddy Mouse uh, it's it, he's playing with a, a guy called Fred Frith, who was a member of a band called Henry Cow, who were one of my before punk. Uh, Henry Cow were just before the punk punk broke. Henry Cow were about my favourite band, and uh, when we released, uh, uh, I mean, I adored them. You know, I met them, I followed them around a bit, and the usual mad fandom thing. And then when our first single was released, we uh, we we put our address on it, the squat. We lived in Camden Town in London, in, in, hoping that other musicians would get in touch in that very participatory collaborative post-punk thing. And the, and uh, about a few days after the, the record was released through Rough Trade, uh, we got a copy returned to us in the post and it was sent back to us by the drummer from Henry Cow. Uh, who you know we had adored, and 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 he just attached a note to it saying, "Leave making music, music leave making music to the professionals." Can you imagine that? Oh, I know. That'll, that that was harsh. That could
0: uh, taint your uh, <laughs> your appreciation of the of their stuff. I would think, perhaps.
1: Well, no, I still adore their stuff, but you know, it was uh, that that was. Um, yeah, not a terribly helpful. I was kind of shocked because I thought, you know, being a man of the left, that he would be all all for, you know, inclusive, emancipatory, participatory music made by unprofessional people. I thought that was that was the whole point that you know, unprofessionalism would be no bar to involvement. Uh, you know, but he obviously didn't think that way. Right.
0: Well, it's fascinating when people go out of their way to be rude. Um, it would have been so much simpler, and it would have even saved the you know the the price the, of a stamp, the, the cost of the post. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Just to keep, just not to say anything at all. I'm glad he um, did though, because it's a,
1: it's kind of a great story
0: now for me. You know. Yeah, so. Oh, it is. It's it is <laughs> one, absolutely one of your heroes. <laughs> right, right. Well, did uh, it, it's funny when you did send the, when you sent this song um, as your second choice. I yeah. immediately could see the connection between this and, and Skank Bach, Block, and right. uh, Bologna. Yeah, yeah. Just to, to me, it was r- easy. Readily apparent, and, oh, really? and that's, that's, that's not always the case. And you may disagree, but just as the as a listener, that was the experience I had. So yeah, well, that's great. Yeah. That's you know
1: that I treasure any any association with <laughs> uh, with Robert and his music is uh, you know it's a, it's a kind of blessing. Yeah, wonderful man.
0: Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st-century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS. A collection put together by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from the collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org. Or when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. This episode is brought to you by Royal Books, located at 32 West 25th Street in Charles Village here in Baltimore. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you will find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music Gartside chose as being crucial to him was Hanged I Shall Be by the Albion Country Band featuring Martin Carthy.
1: Now, as I was called apprentice
0: I was prentice to the mill, and I served me master truly for more than seven years, until I took up to court in it with a husband that in eye, and I promised that at merry-good in the month of sweet July, and as we went talking, through the fields and the meadows so
1: when i was about uh the same time that i started listening to uh, robert wyatt and uh, and all those challenging music so i was about 14 or 15 there was a new kid uh arrived at uh you know our grammar school our high school if you like and he was um he was odd he was precociously her suit i mean we were talking 14 or 15 he had a like a full-grown proper, proper beard, and and he had hair, you know, way halfway down his back, and he always had a clutch of uh, vinyl albums underneath his arm. So of course, you know, I had to get to know this new this new kid. He was the the hippiest, hairiest kid that you know by a mile, and uh, so yeah, I had to meet him, and his name was Neil. And uh, he became a founder member of the first lineup of Skritti Polity with me. And he, uh, at school, he introduced me to two things. Uh, one was Marxism. He came from a Communist Party family background. And the other was folk music. Uh, and to begin with, you know, I found the folk music harder to digest than the Marxism. You know, I was really kind of resistant to it. You know, I couldn't see how traditional music would have any relevance for me. Uh, I kind—I didn't like the way it sounded. I didn't like the nasally voices. And uh, I thought, you know, just didn't work. And then he played for me um, an album called Lesion Leaf by Fairport Convention. And, uh, you know, Fairport Convention, that was the first album in which they mixed traditional British folk song with kind of, for want of a better word, rock and roll uh, arrangements. And I was sold. Uh, on that you know that was such an it's still that's still an incredible album and uh, with Richard Thompson and Sandy Denny you know people you know I'm still a huge fan of Richard Thompson's work to this day It's still one of the uh, the greatest guitarists in the world I think anyway uh, so yeah I was sold and that that kind of uh, led me to uh, a deepening appreciation of traditional music and uh, led me to discover the music of Martin Carthy and Martin is the the greatest exponent for my money of the of traditional British music, bar none, and uh, you know that that prompted me to start going to folk clubs when I was fourteen or fifteen, and, and going to see Martin Carthy play. You know, at that point, every town had a a room ab- above a bar somewhere, usually in an insalubrious uh, pub near the docks or wherever. They were very uh, down at heel places. Uh, the folk clubs would have been in the early 70s here and um, you know I went to see Martin and he blew my mind he was an incredible guitarist he still is you know one of the most inventive guitarists he had this astonishing harmonic sensibility when arranging accompaniments to traditional songs and You know he is one of the 20th century's greatest vocal stylists for me Uh, you know maybe a lot of people can't get with it but I think you know he's up there with a beef heart or or, um, I don't know who else there might be people whose voices seem seem to come out of nowhere uh, and are so very distinctive and uh, you know I think his voice is a thing of great beauty and I began following him round and I think really bugging him at gigs I would kind of stalked him you know and I would you know give him little presents and I just wanted to be uh, to be near him I, I you know I adored him I adore him still you know he's he's 80 now and he's still gigging and uh, he gigs with his daughter Eliza Carthy and uh, he married into a folk family called the Watterson's and uh i kind of know martin now uh we've done some gigs together and stuff which is an incredible thrill and uh um yeah he's 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 always been incredibly uh kind to me and uh, he's this is this uh, is a There's a song called Hang It, I Shall Be, uh, which Martin sings with the Albion Country Band, which is a band formed by Ashley Hutchins, the founder of Fairport Convention. And um, it's, uh, yeah. So I was a a super... Mad fan. And uh, this record, I think, is a great piece of work. Uh, I just think his singing and playing on it are exquisite. It has that kind of almost, uh, it's a darkly mysterious song about, you know, psychologically troubling traditional song. Uh, and it's got that kind of guitar in it that sounds like something from television's Marky Moon. Do you know what I mean? It's that, that, it's kind of a bit old fashioned Rocky, the, the, the riffs to get introduced, but they really are, you know, it's it's like Tom Verlaine by way of Richard Thompson. It's a very uh, specific, magnificent sound. And um, yeah, just, just a, uh, the, 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 he's the other candidate for greatest living Englishman in my books and his records, all his solo work and, and works with other bands like Steel I Span and so on and so forth, uh, have been massively important to me. And that, and uh, there's a certain kind of modal melody that and uh, different, different modes, of course, that crop up a lot in British folk song that I kind of have gotten into using quite a lot. And uh, yeah, I I feel like I owe him a great deal and
0: love him dearly. It's funny you mention him, because I literally just a few days ago finished editing our most recent episode, which is with Richard Thompson. You're um, kidding. No, oh, and he was an incredibly erudite and scholarly interview. He's such... Uh, yeah, such an incredibly intelligent guy, and that comes as no surprise. But it even exceeded my expectations, um, and yeah. it sent me on a rabbit hole on a number of things that you just discussed as well. Um, yeah. There's he talks about a, a Joe Haney um, song or uh, his playing of a of a, or his singing of a specific. Um, it's traditional folk song, and of course, yes, that right. was their that was their journey um, with folk. With um, reading Richard's book as well, was defining yeah, these traditional. Yeah, he mentioned he mentions me in one of his songs. You know, oh, does I he? Was...
1: <laughs> he did. Yeah, That's I think a... the song was called "Girl with a Bone Through Her Nose." Uh-huh. Maybe okay, and uh, I, I can't remember exactly the sentiment of the song. I think it might be a not wholly uh, flattering view of a of a woman whose occupation is maybe a model. And ah, um, okay. and in the song anyway, he sings that the boyfriend of of this woman uh, is the singer in Scritti Palitti. So he actually sang, <laughs> and I was on stage. I was on stage with him. I was doing a. Uh, I'd done some gigs with Joe Boyd, the great record Mm -hmm. producer. Mm -hmm. Uh, We kind of toured the world doing the songs of Nick Drake, me and a bunch of other fabulous Mm. musicians. And Mm. I was doing a thing at the Barbican here in London, uh, the music of the Incredible String Band, who I also loved. Uh, And Richard Thompson was on stage. I was doing a song. It was me, Richard. I can't remember who else was singing. Maybe it was Robin Hitchcock. And, uh, you know, I met... Uh, Richard on stage I mean I spoke to him later during the day obviously but and I in a lull in proceedings I said to him uh, you probably don't know who I am, but you but you mentioned me in a song of yours, and I, I reminded him what the song was, and he looked really he kind of blanched a little, you know, went pale and said, "You're not going to sue me, are you?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I said I wasn't. It was just a you know such a. Th- Can you imagine being on stage with Richard Thompson? Oh my God!
0: No, I would be. And I sang
1: I sang a duet with his daughter Cami as uh-huh. well, and you know, fabulous. What a I love that man's work
0: so it, it loops back to the beginning of our conversation about hip hop and it sounds like it was a you know I didn't catch the exact reference he made to you but it almost sounds like an uh, early version of a diss track that he was
1: yeah it, it's, uh, it could well be that yeah I, I think you know uh, yeah I think maybe he you know he he's often um, turned a jaundiced eye to uh, certain topics in his songwriting and I think You know, girl with a bone through her nose may well be one of
0: those. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner essential tremors is distributed by wypr baltimore for more information about essential tremors go to essentialpodcast.com thanks for listening